Hey everyone, welcome back for another episode of Over the Bridge podcast. Uh, it's the full cast here. Well, in a second, anyway. Patrick's running a little bit late. We've got everyone here, and we're also joined by a special guest, a good friend of ours who's been on a podcast before. We'll let him introduce himself in just a second. But before he does, Tom Kwaku, how are you both doing? Bro, I'm good, man. I'm yeah. good. I'm blessed. Yeah, just been this weekend was very necessary in it because I had a mad busy week. Um, I touched on it probably like last episode. I had a big event that I was like organizing for work, and that went really well. So, you know, after you do something that like, you've been planning for time, and like as soon as you finish, like because you're running adrenaline mm-hmm. initially, as soon as you mm-hmm. finish, like you just mm-hmm. get bare tired. Yeah, and it just like drains you in once. Um, so I kind of had that. So this weekend was just a nice time to like recuperate, see yeah. family, that kind of thing. So yeah, I'm blessed, man. How you guys doing? Yeah, I'm good, man. Similar. I had this one day where I'd done basically back-to-back Zoom calls from 9am till 9pm. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting on this same chair. And when I turned around, I literally just, just fell on the floor and was just lying on the floor for like a good <laughs> 15 minutes, not moving. <laughs> But like since then I've recovered and I'm back to normal. So. What about you, Tom? Yeah, I'm all right, man. I'm all right. A bit tired. Obviously, election. That drove me a bit mad having to look at that from my end. And then Pfizer this week about I have a vaccine. I'll tell you something funny about the Pfizer thing, right? So Pfizer knew about this thing a few weeks before Trump, um, before the election. Okay. And the CEO of Pfizer said, this is nothing political which, you know, read, read of that what you will. Anyway, they said, why have you delayed things? And he said, I've delayed it because I need uh, this FDA approval. So they needed a second test to approve it. But even with that approval, apparently he could have got this thing done a couple of weeks before the election. Now, if that had happened, we all kind of probably know what the outcome would have been. So I think, you know, <laughs> make of that what you will anyway. Let me try and stay as impartial as possible. But then there's that. <laughs> Earnings is done. So I'm, I'm actually on a bit of a come down now, to be honest. Like my adrenaline has been up for about two, three weeks, kind of just, you know, back to back, kind of not really sleeping particularly well, waking up early to talk to Asian, you know, client companies, blah, 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 blah. Staying up late to talk to the Americans. Uh, so kind of just getting back into a bit of normality. At least the weather here is nice. So, yeah. Nice, man. Well, sounds like everyone is recovering, which is a good place to be in at this season. But I said our special guest, who we've had on before, um, welcome, welcome back, George the Poet. How are you doing, man? Yo, I'm good, brother. How are you? I'm all blessed. Well, thank you for giving up your time on a Sunday morning to be here oh, with us. I love reconnecting with you guys, man. Yeah. Well, how's things been going for you anyway? I know that you've had a, a pretty busy year. Um, everything's good, you know. Everything's good. I'm a... Um, working on the next chapter of my podcast. I've gone back to school, um, just trying to be clear on what what the direction is after this um, resurgence of interest in uh, Pan-African issues, mm-hmm. which has always been my politics. Um, so it's it's nice to not not just be speaking into a you know like to a dis- disinterested audience right now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. I think um, similar to me in that my work, you know, I work in inclusion stuff and work with young people. And a lot of the time prior to this year, I felt that in my world of work, 
It's like you had to convince people that what you're saying and doing is something they should listen to. Right. And people were always trying to fight. Whereas now, whilst there's obviously still people trying to fight you on it, it's almost like you've got an audience that are prepared to at least listen. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the greatest successes of this thing. Um, I've been saying stuff about, first of all, my community, the Northwest London community, and then the black community. And my work started to get more and more international facing as I started articulating things about African and Ugandan politics. But I always felt like I was swimming against the tide. And now um, I don't feel like that. Bro. That's amazing, man. That's amazing. Well, I thought we could talk about today um, and everyone else like jump in here. It's really just at coming, it's not the end, but coming towards the end of 2020, which everyone has just described on social media and in real life as just the maddest year ever. Um, sort of just reflections on the year, what we've kind of seen, what we think for the future, how we felt about the year, sort of highlights, lowlights, things like that. Um, anyone, how do we feel about that, man? <laughs> Sounds good, Boy. man. Yeah, it's been an eventful year. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we start with you, George, man? Take us away. Like, tell us, tell us your thoughts initially on just 2020. Uh, do you know what I recently realised? Just a tangent, but it's related, obviously. Um, Biggie Smalls, notorious, yeah. Mm. He passed away. No, sorry. Park, Tupac passed away on September 13th, 1996. Hmm. September 13th 1993 was it 93 or 94 was Biggie's first album Ready to Die that was the release date so imagine your main up dying on the anniversary of your album called Ready to Die damn Um, and obviously Biggie was killed days I think 16 days before his the release of his album life after death and i just think about this stuff and um i've got i've got friends that are a little bit more you know um more conspiracy minded than me right so they they put these dots together and they say x means y and what and it's like as much as i don't believe everything's a conspiracy i do believe that like there are there are sciences there are things at play that we can't articulate mm-hmm. um the alignment of planets etc the timing it timing of events and there's something about 2020 bro there's something about 2020 that has given all of us across the world um collective talking points now partly that might just be a story about globalization and where it's at in terms of travel and cultural conversation um for me being the child of immigrants in in a western society i I feel all of this within my body, within my life, within my mind. I feel Black Lives Matter. I feel um, NSARS. I feel uh, the the shifts and the inequalities that are, are being exacerbated by blood, everything. And so a lot of this stuff isn't isn't theoretical for me. It, it sits in my imagination in a weird in a weird way. And, and 2020 has been full of food for thought, at least. Boy, yeah, I really hear that. I hear, 
I hear you on like, you know, when it's something that to some people is we need data or we need evidence or we need the theory behind this. And you're like, I can't give you the theory because this is my life. Like I can't sit here and give you factual evidence based on qualitative first-hand accounts of things that I've felt. It's a feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and to an extent, I think that's a, that's a draw out. That's a trap. What do you mean? Um, stats and evidence when i'm like certain all right let me give you um the most concrete example that i can give our music the 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 main music whether that's rap african music jamaican music whatever um our music comes about from our response to world events Mm. but if we had to sit down and draw up a committee and pull together all the evidence before we launched the Mm. market you know what I'm saying? Move into the industry. Like, it just wouldn't work. But because we have our own ways of dealing with things and talking about things that might not always involve spreadsheets and charts, you know, we, we, we just create like an alternative, an alternative space. Mm. Another thing with that is like, you're right, it is a draw up because it's just used to to minimize genuine feelings that people are experiencing and particularly because there's there's no like scientific way to approach these experiences that we kind of collectively have there's no like double blind test you can do do you know what i mean and there's a lot of people that are very cynical and they they know that that's not possible but that's an excuse to say oh in fact in that case it isn't valid Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. anecdotal evidence isn't valid so therefore your claims are you know are void and you're right it's a, it's a complete draw out it's just an excuse not to really engage in the conversation and twitter is like the worst place to <laughs> to have to like try and engage in that conversation so it's just like i avoid it man it's mad yeah man I, let me ask you a lot of questions i'm just go straight into it boy Black Lives Matter, the movement has been heavily aligned with um, anti-capitalist sentiment. We know how that is playing out in politics, in British politics as well, with the recent pronouncements from the Equalities Minister. Damn, I forgot her name. Kemi Badenoch. Kemi Badenoch. Um, How do you lot feel about the alignment of um, Hmm. Pan-African empowerment with anti-capitalism? Ooh, that's a tough question because, well, there's there's one aspect. It's kind of like the I was I was I was watching one interview. I forgot the guy's name, Femi something. Right, he's on this yeah. morning talk show. Oh yeah, I know, I know yeah, exactly man. who you're talking. Yeah, about. he's a jig, like at least in this instance, like yeah, he'll um, just say it. Yeah, literally, and there's this like you know middle-aged older white woman who tends to take the side of you know the typical kind of like um just someone that isn't really willing to engage in the conversation and is a bit more um she has an idealized image of how britain is and how people think and this whole idea that like oh of course like you know racism occurs but we're not a, a racist society and you know those types of those arguments right Anyway, Femi's on the on the show and, and she's basically the conversations around Black Lives Matter and um in relation to the poppy as well and how 
um, essentially she was arguing that um, it's that you sh- is is wrong to argue against like the poppy being worn right, and yeah. essentially saying that. Essentially, Femi is saying that is a politicized point, right? Um, yeah. And she's saying it's different to the to like the whole Black Lives Matter thing, saying that that's not um, that's particularly political, which is why it shouldn't really be enforced with like the the bands and and that kind of thing where other yeah. organizations yeah. do that. Yeah. And saying it's inappropriate, but the poppy the poppy thing is um, standard. And, I think exactly. Femi called it a moral absolute. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And um, bro, it's mad. I just lost my point. This is this is a clear <laughs> a clear sign of me. Like, <laughs> my calm down is a is a clear sign of it. I, I completely lost my point. Well, we, we were talking. I asked if um, the alignment of like Pan African unity and what you think of that that alignment with anti capitalist sentiment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There we go. It's almost argued so, that you kind of might need it. Almost. I don't because... know because. No, but because, I, I, because I, I think about this, right? I think, um, so the, the way I see like unity in, in Africa and kind of, I mean, they tried in pockets. Like you look at ECOWAS, which is like this kind of West African um, economic zone. And they've tried to, they've, they've tried to work with a, with a, a, the traditional Western capitalistic model of bringing in all of these big companies. And obviously the result has been very clear. Just go to Nigeria and look at what happens with all the oil companies mm-hmm. in Niger Delta, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously the classic model of capitalism doesn't work. You need something closer to what the Chinese have, which is this kind of weird hybrid right between socialism and capitalism. They understand how things work kind of thing. And that kind of the only way, at least from the lens I see things and I look at stuff on a day-to-day basis, that's the only way you actually get any form of proper unity and economic empowerment and everybody actually just considering Africa being a dominant force, save for everybody, every, everyone looking at the French-speaking part of, of Africa because of the connections they have in Paris and South Africa, which is obviously for a different reason because the, the, the colors are very different. In terms of sub-Saharan Africa, you need this kind of unity and therefore you need well, you need this kind of unity away from so I think there's a mad siren in the background yeah siren in the background but you Exo- need this kind an of an exotic siren yeah exactly exactly <laughs> right. <South> London. <laughs> but you need you, you need this kind of togetherness and I, I think I remember an example where I think it was in Namibia or something like that where the government of the day decided to charge one of the I don't know if it was diamond extractors but one of those guys they charged them a 100% tax and said, well, you're in our country, you have to do what we, we tell you to basically do. Obviously, the company was not pleased, but guess what? They couldn't do anything about it. You could sue them, but it's kind of like... And so there does have to be this kind of weird hybrid that you see, mm. because it's worked well for China, right? You look at China, was China was growing... China was giving you the, the GDP equi- equivalent of Turkey in about 12 weeks, about a few years ago. And that was based on the government says, right, you do this, you do this. This is how we grow. You go and do this. You go and do this. And, uh, you know, they have these um, hundred year plans, which is not capitalistic, yeah. right? Because capitalism is give me the growth for the next quarter. Do what you have to do. But in China, it was yeah. like, you give me the growth over the next hundred years and this is how yeah. we go and do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That so, long-term thinking. Yeah, exactly. Tom, yeah, Tom, there's something in what you said at the start, which is like about non-traditional capitalism. 
and I can't remember your exact words, but it was something around of like this way of doing capitalism doesn't work to empower the Pan-African community, right? Mm -hmm. And that is what I would argue. Like I would say, building your own capital, like building your own systems, building your own industries, that's empowerment. But there's a form of capitalism that particularly in the West, that what we've got is people experiencing oppression at the hands of that capitalism. So can that be empowering for people? Well, no. And I think Tom's point there about like the longevity of it. So look at the next 100 years. We're not trying to do short term, quick wins. It's a long term solution for people to build their own capital. I think that's important. But when you've got people, particularly in the Black Lives Matter movement and Black Lives Matter protest on the street, asking for the defunding or the eradication or the like the total liberation from systems that we have at the moment that's obviously a cry out against the fact that the way things are done now mm. are not helpful the way things are done now are not empowering they're actually oppressive yeah do you know what i'm finding e- increasingly challenging though <sighs> we we're trying to square our dissatisfaction with the status quo yeah Mm. with the you know our optimism for tomorrow Mm. we want a better tomorrow today's not perfect but i feel like the conversation becomes less and less feasible less and less realistic when we hold on to when we hold on to um, ideals that we haven't seen evidence of mm. in our actual lives. Mm. Like in my lifetime, I haven't seen an ideal economic program for anyone, blood, as a group, as a macro group. I haven't seen perfect communism. I haven't seen perfect capitalism. Mm. Now, in order, whatever the the next iteration of our economic system will be, whatever it will be, in order to avoid bloodshed and confusion, you're going to need consensus. You're going to need a widespread coalition, cross-sectoral, cross-continental, cross-cultural coalition that agrees, you know what? tomorrow should look like x Mm. and if you don't have that consensus then you're really talking about war you're talking about taking what people have and forcing them to see the world your way that feels like an end game though war does feel like an end game though when i look at the world in which we live in because the reason why i say that is because if i look at if i look at what like the perils of social media what is created is created different truths to different people and so what that means is that you know, so it's like you might use social media and think everybody agrees with you until all of a sudden something happens, like an election doesn't turn out to go your way or some referendum doesn't turn out to go your way because everybody seeks their own truth. And so when they seek their own truth, they stay in their own truth and believe that their own truth is the correct thing. And people don't want to have, um, because it almost feels like consensus is almost impossible to achieve. And then, mm-hmm. and, and this is not just in the, this is not just in, in the Western world as such. This is, happening all over the world. So if you look at, for example, 
it's almost a matter of time before you get some war between India and uh, China, for example, China. because they have massive differences. And then the Russians will step in with somebody else and then someone's going to dish out some nuclear arms. And it's kind of like the world in which we live in overall, it's completely fragile and it's, and, it, and it's basically almost gone to, it's basically gone to pot. And, and like, it's almost the notion of globalization doesn't really exist. There's one of, one of my Ooh. favorite, one of the one of my favorite quotes from a CEO. He 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 runs this multinational electric company, and and all they do is literally put sockets in different parts of the world, which is a pretty neutral activity. Everybody wants electricity, and he's you know he can this company can go all over. And he says, actually, let's think about it. When I talk to different companies and I talk to different people in the world, we live in a multi-local world. We don't live in a globalized world where yeah. one standard we have here in the West is the same as everywhere else. And so, what that means is, I must think to to achieve that kind of consensus of having a better tomorrow yet having or to, understanding today's not perfect but having a, a a low enough discount factor to to say there's going to be a better tomorrow it just it's very hard to fathom and it's almost like mm. you were talking about um big and, and tupac and it's almost like it's like buster rhymes extinction extinction level event two is coming <laughs> it's kind of it feels like that it really does yeah, feel like the world is about yeah. to implode on itself because can, can, can i can i jump in there though because like at the start we, you know, like George, you're talking about with after the events of this year with like very global activist movements that everyone was seeing. I think there was a like a very large visibility of Black Lives Matter and of NSARS and of other protest movements around the world, like in Hong Kong, etc. And then we've also got the world sharing in a pandemic, so the whole world pretty much experiencing a collective experience of trauma of pain of lockdown of whatever how however people have experienced it but then i've also heard this idea of the lack of consensus and then now we're talking about war do we think that the events of this year have brought the world closer together or further apart well my view of human existence is one big portrait yeah that is static the image is static and that static image is like everything that has ever imagine everything that has ever happened because it actually happened at an actual time it Mm. could theoretically be on one image Mm. but things are constantly happening at the same time so imagine that image with uh, a moving element so there's detail in the image which is constantly emerging T- those two things are a fact so when we look at like has the world got closer or not there have been there have been events so for example um black lives matter has whipped up a spirit across the black universe mm. in which black skin means something to more more people it signifies more about what has already happened those static images but at the same time um there are there are other movements like tectonic plates under the surface Mm, that we can't see mm, 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 mm. you know what i mean Mm, mm. and i think Mm. some of those movements are divisive but i also think that the process of communication and technological advance. Those are movements under the surface um, that happen every single generation. 
and they have a big impact on what that generation becomes, how they communicate and what technology they're using. So as we talk, as we talk, the world is transforming in ways that we can't yet articulate. Mm. So we can't, yeah, yeah. there are things that we, we just can't, we just can't account for. Yeah. Which is why I find it easier to err on the side of optimism because everything that you know will not exist at one point anyway. It doesn't, mm-hmm. that's, 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 but that's even, for sure. No, no, it's true. But even you, but I asked a question about, about, about COVID and whether this, this collective experience of pandemic has brought us together. But then the answer is no, because the question is, it was it even a collective experience? Look at the cadence of how COVID has happened, right? So, China starts off with it first. The thing, the place recovered in two months, yeah. right? By making everybody sit down and say, listen, nobody goes out, nobody does anything. You lose social security if you try, if you dare to fly out, right? Which is why everybody was at Beijing, Guangzhou, everyone just trying to fly out and trying to go, go wherever. Yeah. So that was fine. China's now back up and running and blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden selling the world, selling the Western world 3M mask that they decided to import in December last year. Then you've got um, the US, which is just a complete mess because they, they love law and liberty too much to the point where somebody wants to wear a mask, somebody doesn't want to wear a mask, somebody wants to go out and it's going to stay for longer and the second wave is going to be horrible. And in Europe, it, well, cases and deaths are going up. So it's not, it's not been a collective experience. Initially, it might have been a collective experience, but it's not a collective experience. Some people have got off and gone away with it. And that even kind of tells you the world in which we live in is almost this more complicated monolith than what we give credit for because it's kind of like another part of the world is no longer going through the situation and now we're all kind of still suffering from the second wave and we're suffering from the mistake of policymakers who i said this before when when i was in the uk and lockdown number one first came i think a lot of people really tried to comply with it until you realize there's animal farm and you realize that there are people who can do kind of what they want and now you've got lockdown too you're like well, I'm just going to do what Dominic Cummings did. And, you know, I haven't even been in number 10, so they can't kick me out of number 10 like what they've done with this guy. So it is, it is not, a, this. honestly, this experience, apart from, unfortunately, the fatalities and, and even perhaps getting COVID, um, it hasn't been a collective experience. It hasn't. It's not, I would say it hasn't really been, it's at the edges, yes, but it hasn't, it hasn't been a collective experience when you look on a global macro level. It hasn't been a collective experience. And that is almost, and the wider point of that is that the, I honestly think like, like while you're optimistic, I, I, I kind of, I'm on the other side. I'm like, the world is basically screwed up and continues to screw up, use all the resources. And you can, you can almost see where the, you can almost see what the end game is going to be kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Can, can I just, I actually agree. Let oh, me yeah. just, sorry, let me just jump on that one more time. I actually agree, but it's always been like that. Like people have always been self-destructive and mm, mm. what happens mm. is that we study our self-destruction and that the study of it creates a resolution to avoid like self-preservation. We mm. want to, it's the reason Black Lives Matter has been able to get to the point it has this year because mm. society recognizes on some level that this is in the collective interest. It doesn't work mm. otherwise. Mm-hmm. So I'm always mindful that there's an incoming generation that are going to grow up with real disdain for our decisions, disdain for the way that we do things. And and that that disdain is where my optimism comes from. Mm. I I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. 
I was just going to add, um, hello everyone, by the way. And just, oh, welcome. Brother. For, yeah, finally got my internet of work. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was just going to add to that, that I feel like um, what the pandemic has done is just kind of taken the veil off of everything. So beforehand where it's like, you know, there's an inkling that, you know, our society is probably not very equal, but maybe that's just how things are. You know, maybe equality is just a part of life. Now with the pandemic, I think what we've seen is like all the kind of things that have been in the shadows have come to light. Like it's very obvious now. It's not something that you can argue against, like the double standards, the one rule for them and one one rule for us kind of thing. Um, yeah. the the kind of cracks in our system, um, our capitalist system, the fact that there isn't actually a viable safety net in our Western countries. There's, it's, it's interesting how, you know, the United States st- still, you know, arguably, well, still one of the most uh, powerful countries in the world. The UK, the sixth lar- largest economy. Our two countries, I don't think it's a coincidence that we are struggling with covid um, more than you know anywhere else in the world, um, Brazil is another place that is struggling very very badly as well. Um, and if you look at those countries, you know right from the very top down, it's like there is this individualistic um, kind of mentality within the society. Um, there is a one rule for them, one rule for um, us kind of thing. Um, and I feel th- I feel like yeah, the pandemic has just kind of it's made it abundantly clear that the systems that we have in place, at least in like in our Western Western economies, it actually doesn't work. All it takes is one small, well, one pandemic to just mash up the whole thing. And people mm-hmm. will say, oh, okay, well, it's a pandemic and it's, you know, it's mashed up everything. And But other countries obviously have done a lot better. Um, they have, have been a lot, their response to the situation um, has been a lot more um, beneficial for, for the actual, their population. So, I don't know, man. Um, and I, I was listening before when we were sort of talking about, like, you know, the link between um, anti-capitalism and pan-Africanism. Um, I think, like, Black Lives Matter being anti-capitalist, I think at, at this point, any kind of movement that is, you know, asking for change, I think one of the biggest issues in our society is how we do capitalism um, and, and the fact that it is exploitative and the fact that it is... Um, it is it's predicated on a, on a on a legacy of 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 transatlantic slavery so it's always going to be exploitation is, is going to be at its heart like that is that is the lifeblood of western capitalism mm. um, and it hasn't moved away from that like the only the only way that cat- capitalism can still work is via the um the disenfranchisement of um of of africa if mm. africa starts um sticking up for itself if you know the two largest countries in africa suddenly became super stable congo and nigeria suddenly became super stable um you know nigeria is one of the biggest oil producers in the world congo we know that it's rich in raw materials that fund our tech if those two countries become stable and um the government say actually do you know what shell do you know what apple you man you actually need to start paying for what you're getting the our economies will collapse western economies will collapse so um, for me, it's not a surprise that you know Black Lives Matter has has yeah. this anti-capitalistic yeah. side to it, and yeah. you know people are clutching their poles. But to be honest, I feel like the people that are clutching at their poles, being like, "Oh, you know, we can't have this," blah blah blah. Those are the people that stand something to lose. And at the end of the day, like 
it, so this brings me back to my original point like it doesn't this whole pandemic and everything that's going on is highlighting that actually you know like this world isn't we're not all in it together there's people that stand a lot to lose from positive things happening for example um for black people do you see what i mean so yeah yeah can i uh, yeah go, go ahead uh, no george i was actually gonna throw to you with a question anyway so you come in i was gonna say that one of the what patrick just reminded me of one of the things that bothers me the most um and i think it's this inability for us to form a, a, a collective memory yeah every generation feels like and i'm not saying this about us that we feel like this but there tends to be the sentiment that we are undergoing a period that for the first time is revealing cracks in the system. Mm. When I feel like every motherfucking generation underwent <laughs> a period that revealed, revealed cracks in the system <laughs> and they were vocal about it and mm. they stood up and did whatever they could. They did it in the seventies. They did it in the sixties. They did it in the fifties. They did mm. it in the forties. Um, bro, like obviously the wars like at every point there was a big thing happening that suggested that the narratives that you get from your government and maybe from your mainstream media might be a little bit simplistic mm. now the thing about narratives from government and media is that they are mass coordinated and mass disseminated yeah, of course man of course you see it so when we on the ground get sick this is why i'm obsessed with rap music so i'm obsessed with dancehall music because it's like when the people on the ground um, truly, truly disengage. Remember, rap was born out of the failures and the frustrations of the civil rights movement. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, there was still a generation, in the 60s, there was still a generation of African-American leaders that were like, look, let's make this work. Let's mm-hmm. some non-violence, mm-hmm. some violence, some... Everyone. Mm-hmm. The, the thinking at the time was, let's set up political parties and infiltrate mm-hmm. the political system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By the 70s, the Panthers were a thing. And the, the Panthers' militant consciousness mixed with a new generation of gangster. Long story short, there's now a section of African America that don't care what the government messaging is, don't care what mainstream media messaging is. Um, now, the, the frustration is that sub that section um, will never have... They, 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 they don't have um, institutions that allow their uh, worldview to continue outside of our music. Our music is that. It's an institution that keeps our worldview at the forefront as opposed to in the shadows. And obviously, to an extent, that is co-opted by, cap- by capitalism. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, w- what I think would benefit us is if we started accumulating the knowledge accumulating the struggle accumulating the sacrifice and young people uh, school leavers left with a feeling that they were standing on the shoulders of giants because 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 we are bro like as much as we like to say yo the world is fucked it's so much less fucked mm, mm, than mm-hmm. 50 years ago in my mm-hmm. opinion yeah can i, can I jump in on that because that kind of leads into the question i was thinking before because, you know, George, a lot of the time people would describe you as like a social commentator slash just an observer of the world, you know. And we talk a lot, I think, even in this conversation about some of the negative experiences of the year. Um, what have you seen or have you, are you thinking about that could potentially be positive that has come out of this year in particular? Mm. 
Well, music, man. Music, 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 music. Um, in in my city, in London, hmm. uh, um, the urban black music scene has moved leaps and bounds and continues to do so. And I think it is largely because of everything that we just described. Young black people um, in many situations are so uninvested in the mainstream narrative. Mm. So what happens is, for better or for worse, um, these little pockets of society emerge in which we're just talking to ourselves for ourselves. And the way that we do it is so multifunctional in terms of sharing knowledge, in terms of generating opportunity, in terms of celebrating who we are. Mm. Um, and it, it, just, it just becomes more and more successful. I, I jumped into the music scene when I was like 15 years ago, when I was about 14. And even then it was genius, but the genius just becomes further and further entrenched and further enabled um, uh, by technology. So uh, I would definitely say that the music that c continues to come out of young black people, that is um, another big driver of my optimism. All right, can I, can I just ask you on that? Because I was having a chat with somebody about this the other day. So we were, I was talking to someone about a man named Vincent Bellore. Hold on, let, let me land. He, he runs a conglomerate, and that conglomerate, as I understand it, owns, I think, a portion of Warner. And then we got talking about Warner, Sony, Universal, which basically runs the entire music industry as it is, just makes his money by... Uh, masters and I think was it Michael Jackson used to own Sony and then they got it back off him and Prince had the kind of similar thing as well Michael used to make a billion off of masters and that when he owned his, his stake in it so it's like while there is a positive nature in music you can almost argue that music to some extent there is an element of propaganda as well just because of the fact that it is a triopoly propaganda but propaganda requires centralized consistent messaging right yeah, it's true. But I mean, you well, can argue there is some kind of centralized messaging that they want to deliver. The people, the big wigs up at Sony, Universal and Warner, there is probably some kind of central yeah. messaging that they want to, to give, you know? 100% you, you can argue that. But at the same time, what, what they can't do is, is um, create the sentiment or the, the mm. what's mm. it called, the artistic innovation. Yeah. They can only react to it. Right, mm. so it's it is. Uh, I'll always argue that exploitation is not new. People trying to be clever about people's misfortune and trying to secure their continued advantage from mm. the continued disadvantage of others. That shit is just human nature. That mm. is not going anywhere. But what I find fascinating is that of all the oppressed people, yeah, of all the drug dealers, of all the gangsters, of all the um, uh, political prisoners it seems to be our young people mm. that create sounds that take over the world. Mm. And the more, the more versant we get in capitalism, the more we're going to mm. start evolving our responses to capitalism. It already happens. You've seen like the impact of the Nigerian artists and the NSARS movement. And that became mm. that like, I'm not saying that that's going to completely end what SARS is indicative of, but it's, um, it's progress, bro. It's real, power that wouldn't be available to us through any other channels mm, mm. it's like do you, do you feel like um the fact that artists nowadays they 
they have sort of, I guess, more autonomy, more sort of power. They they tend to, they're more likely to own their own masters nowadays, or at least... Um, R.I.P. Nipsey Hussle. <laughs> R.I.P. Of course. I knew Tony was going to come through. Um, but they're, they're, they're more likely to, I, I think that that there's a tendency to be more independent now because um, people can blow without any kind of, um, like you can have like a million people, a million followers and not have a record label, record deal, whatever. Um, so do, do you feel like now because of how things have, I guess because of like social media and, and um, just the way that the world is now, things are a lot more instant. Like, you know, we can put out our content, like, 15, 20 years ago, we'd need to like do this on a radio station. We'd probably have to do this on a pirate radio station, but now we can just pub- publish our own content yeah. on the internet and anyone can access it. So do you feel like because of that, that is now sort of, um, that has allowed us to kind of navigate this kind of capitalism that we have to exist in with a, a little bit more sort of like more, more tools? Yeah, do you brother, feel like... like- Mm-hmm. Go on, go on. I was saying earlier, man, mm. uh, the way we communicate and the technology of our generation, these are things that cannot be predicted mm. or controlled. You can mm. try, mm. and I'm sure in, in the Bilderberg conference, they have these conversations, but what happens, happens. And what mm. I see, again, like us on this call right now, I'm just chilling in my car. You guys are wherever you are. This, there is real power in that. Mm-hmm. But if we are overwhelmed, by the things that we cannot control, we're not going to make the most of the opportunity that this um that this presents. Mm-hmm. Mm. I hear that. Yeah, George, I'm so conscious of your time, man, because I know you got to jump off in a sec. But just to sort of wrap us up, in terms of you know, we're now talking about some of the things that we're optimistic about for the future, or some of the things that we've been positive about for for the year or for the past year, anyway. Um, what are you looking forward to coming up in 2021? Um, well, I, I explained to you a lot earlier, I'm going back to school, I'm starting my PhD and the, 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 the research is all about innovation, blood, innovation, the value that comes from innovation. I mm-hmm. believe the future of capitalism is innovation based. Um, uh, I think Tom or Pat were talking earlier about how the, um, the current dominance of Western capitalism replies on uh, sorry relies on the exploitation of Africa mm. and um, I especially in the face of brexit which I, ca- I can't believe we didn't get a t- chance to talk about I think that Western capitalism is going to be forced to acknowledge the role of innovation creative destruction and entrepreneurship in the future of capitalism so I'm going back to school to really like tighten my arguments around that you know, I'd, I'd say something. There's one of the, one of the one of the best ever CEOs. He he died. His name was Sergio Marchionne. He ran Fiat Chrysler, and he basically just, you know, he he got the U.S. government to give him money, and he was he's a genius. But he was very he was a very non traditional individual. Just came out of nowhere. And in 2015, he did a wonderful presentation called "The Confessions of a Capital Junkie," talking about the industries in the world which are value creating, and the in the industries which are value destroying and how you can gain benefits from it. And I encourage you and everybody else to have a look at it. It's one of the best presentations I, I, um, I've ever seen to this day. A CEO saying, listen, my job here is to ultimately make money, but my other job is to tell the truth. Cause, and I realize this now because he, was, he had cancer for a long time and he was going, so he was like, I don't care anymore. 
So mm. he gave this message and he was like, all of these industries are value destroying. Why would anybody invest in them? There is only one way to gain benefit from this, from the value destroying um, industries. And that is to join together in some form of consolidation. That's the only chance you have. Otherwise it doesn't work. Otherwise you render things obsolete. And so yeah. something I'd encourage you to look at, Confessions of a Capital Junkie. But, yeah. can, I, can, I, can I get a plug in as well? Um, Mariana Matsukato is an economist that, um, it, that talks about the role of innovation in the economy. I'm not going to go too far into her argument right now, but um, while we're doing plugs, I, I implore you lot to check out her last book was called The Value of Everything. And it's about economic storytelling and where we think, uh, you know, who makes value versus who takes value. So it seems to be along the same lines of the presentation that you just mentioned. Amazing, man. Well, as you can see, we got our next guest in ready to line up. So I just want to say thank you, George, for joining us once again. This was a as always, a super deep conversation. Every time I talk to you, I'm left with more questions, which is so good. Because, <laughs> like, it just Respect, makes me... Bro. I think the rest of today, I'm going to just be walking around spinning, man, just thinking about... <laughs> um, but, but before I leave, can I can I do the intro, or part of the intro at least, for the next guest? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, why don't we just quickly wrap up this one, and you can actually intro the next episode then. Um, so... Everyone, as you know, that was George the Poet. You can find George the Poet as always on socials, which is just at George the Poet, I think. And then you can also get in touch with us at OTB Podcast UK on the socials too. Um, let us know what you thought. Uh, retweet this, share it, like it, all the stuff, man. And we'll be back in touch with you soon. So thank you very much, everyone.